Well, welcome again. If you want to open up your copy of the scripture to Psalm chapter 95. Uh, if you, you don't have a physical copy of the scripture, I'd love for you to pull out your phone and look up Psalm 95 so you can follow along this morning. This is a beautiful psalm, but it kind of takes an unexpected twist at the end. So I'd like to read it together so that you can lay your eyes on it. And then we'll sort of take it apart verse by verse. And I just think that's more effective when we're all reading it together. Speaking of reading it together, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, you know that we've been trying to read through the scripture as a church together, starting in Genesis chapter 1, and we'll end with Revelation in December. Not for the purpose of, oh, that's something that ought to be done and it's a good thing, but uh, really so that we can say at the end of the year, I read more of God's word this year than I ever have before. And reading it together as a family is especially helpful in in the lobby when you leave. Uh, If you uh, don't have one of these reading guides, pick it up so that you can jump back in. I know a lot of people started, and then we got to Leviticus, and Leviticus is the graveyard of New Year's commitments. uh, But now we're through Leviticus, and so it would be real easy to jump back in. Now we're in the stories of the kings, uh, so much easier to read. But uh, it is really important that we're reading all of the scripture, and we're reading it for ourselves. Just coming to church and listening to me read it is good, but it is not enough. Yesterday afternoon... I was working on my truck in our driveway, and, and uh, some people kind of came up. They saw me working, and, and so I slid out from underneath the car, and I looked like somebody who needed religion. I mean, my face is all greasy. It's one of the downsides of uh, not having any hair. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before, but I don't have any hair. Um, is that, you know, if you have hair and you got grease on your face, you just got grease on your face. But if you don't have hair, you got grease everywhere. And, and so I was that. And then also working underneath your truck, you bump your head a lot. Again, if you have hair, you don't see your clumsiness. But I have marks all over my head where I'd bang my head. And so I just slid out and I'm like half bleeding. I got all this dirt on my face. And they are of a religion that looks a lot like Christianity until you kind of get into it. And they were inviting people in my neighborhood and were inviting me to come to their Easter services. Now, what's interesting is that they don't really honor Jesus the way that the scripture would tell you to honor Jesus. But you would not know that on the surface of their religion. And they are wonderfully kind people. You wouldn't know that it's really not the same unless you had read the scripture for yourself. And if you had been reading the Bible on your own, when you hear their teaching, you instantly go, "Mm, that doesn't sound right. So it is vitally important that you are reading God's word. You are seeing it for yourself. You are letting him transform your life as you read it. And that's why we're reading through the scripture. The point is not to read every sentence. And that's why if you've uh, dropped out in the last couple of months, don't worry about what you miss. Just jump right back in this week. You can see it at the bottom of your listening guide. Uh, You can grab another copy of the reading guide that we pass out at the beginning of the year. That's in the lobby. And Psalm 95 was one of the scriptures that we read this week. So I thought we'd read it together this morning. Verse 1. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to Him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in His hand, and the mountain peaks are His. The sea is His, He made it. 
His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Verse 1, come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. I don't know how often you feel like you've triumphed. For me, it's inconsistent at best. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm winning at life, and sometimes I don't. We're trying to potty train our three-year-old daughter right now. Some days I feel like we're winning, and some days I feel like she's winning, like she's doing it on purpose. She knows exactly what's happening, and she's doing it to, disp- to, to spite us. Right? Sometimes I feel like I'm winning with my middle schooler, and he enjoys talking to me, and he's glad that I'm his dad, and other times I'm not sure that he knows I exist. Right? So there are lots of factors in my life When sometimes I feel like I've won and sometimes I feel like I'm losing. You can feel that way at work. You can feel that way in your family. You can feel that way at church. You can feel that way in essentially every area of life. It will be a waxing and waning, an up and a down. But what the scripture is saying is come and shout triumphantly to the Lord because he is the rock of our salvation. Meaning when everything else is up and down, waxing and waning, high and low. He is a mountain that has never moved. And when I think about him, that is where my confidence comes from. And that is where consistency comes from. He is not changing. And in him is always a sense of triumph. When I think about the Lord and all that he has done, I have a reason To be triumphant, even if everything else in my life is up and down. Verse 2, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. Earlier this week we read about when Solomon, the king of Israel, dedicated the temple of God in Jerusalem. And as he was doing that with the priests and all those who served in the temple, God's cloud Uh, The cloud of his presence came and it was so thick in the temple that the priests who were doing their ministry there, they they just said, what's the point of even being in here? We can't see what we're doing. No one else can see what's happening. And so they had to step outside. It was clear that God was there. Uh, Later on in the psalm, chapter 139, the psalmist is going to say, God is everywhere. He's at this side of the ocean. He's at the other side of the ocean. He's all the way to the heavens. He's all the way down in the depths. Where can I go to get away from his spirit? That's why you and I, we, we, when we're making bad decisions, we try to do what Adam and Eve did. They try, we try to hide. We try to get alone. We try to keep it from God. But the psalmist would say there's no point in that because God is everywhere. And we see this yes and in the scripture. God is everywhere. God was with you at work. He was with you this morning. Uh, he was, uh, he's with you at your kids' games. He's with you when you were hanging out with your friends. He's everywhere. And yet we can come into his presence with an awareness. When we come to church, we we know that he's here and he's here in a unique and special way. And when we come into his presence, we come with thanksgiving. 
You remember the parable that Jesus told about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee? They both came to the temple to appear before God, and the Pharisee gets in. The Pharisee was a really religious person. Um, and the Pharisee's prayer is, Thank you, God. So it sounds like a prayer of thanksgiving that I'm not like, and then he lists a bunch of people that he thought he was better than. Thank you that I'm not like robbers and thieves. And then he looks over at the tax collector who's next to him. The tax collector was, uh, was the worst of the worst in first century Israel. If you wanted to offend somebody, you would compare them to a tax collector. And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Uh, meanwhile, the tax collector is just happy to be there. He knows he doesn't deserve to come to the temple to appear before God because he knows he's a sinner. He knows that he doesn't have any right to ask God for anything, to say anything to God. And so the scripture says that he doesn't, actually, in Jesus' parable. He just beats his chest. He's so broken about who he is. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says, the tax collector went home justified before God. And what's interesting is the Pharisee felt like he was already justified before God. That wasn't even something he was looking for because he was so perfect already. But the tax collector knew when I come to the temple to appear before God, I know that I am in a position of being a receiver. I know that I'm lucky to be here. I, I'm in need. The Pharisee didn't feel like he had any needs. In fact, he probably felt, although he would not have said this, God is lucky to have me here. Everybody else here is lucky to have me here. The reason that the psalmist says we should come before God with thanksgiving is A, we have a lot to be thankful for. And B, it reminds us what the tax collector knew. I am a receiver in this life. Everything that I have is a gracious gift from God. And when I come into God's presence, when I make myself aware, when I gather with other brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus, Jesus said that he would be here with us. When I come before God, I am a receiver and I have a lot to be thankful for. And I shouldn't be thinking, God is lucky to have me on his side. And the people I'm sitting next to, they're lucky that they get to go to church with somebody like me. That's why Jesus was always opposing that self-righteousness that comes from a position of thinking I have earned something. That what I have, even my standing before God, I have done through my own hard work and willpower and deep and abiding commitment. But we come before with thanksgiving because right at the beginning, it reminds us God is the one responsible. I am lucky to be here in His presence. Let us shout triumphantly to Him in song. You know, music does something to us. It opens up a part of us that would probably not be opened up apart from those melodies and 
those sounds. When I was playing basketball in high school, I was the captain of our basketball team. And at the beginning of the game, before that, we would run out for uh, warm-ups. It was like a whole deal. It was like a whole presentation. And we would line up kind of in our locker room at the door of uh, into the, the gym. And the jazz band would come to all the games. And they would play songs in between and timeouts and all those things. And they would play the song that our little basketball team would run out. And because I was the captain, I got to stand in front of that line. And so I would make eye contact with the band director. And that was such a special moment. I felt like that was a big deal. Now looking back on it, I'm like, you know, I'm a moron. Really, is kind of the <laughs> summary of my life. But I would make eye contact with the band director, and then he would launch the band into Eye of the Tiger, because we were the Willard Tigers. You know, you've seen Rocky. I mean, some of you are, like, committed to Jesus. You don't watch movies. You live out in the wilderness and pray and all that. But regular people, we watch classics like Rocky II and Done. Dun, dun, dun. And I would just pause a little bit just to let everybody's heart kind of get into the. And then I would run out. And I feel like I could slam dunk the basketball. I'm five foot nine, not that athletic, but I always felt like just the music was going <laughs> to. And, uh, and I would go for it. And I, I touched the net a few times. It was. <laughs> I did. And I'd hit that net real hard, so it'd make like a, a big deal. Yeah. This music does that to you. Just is like just makes you feel something that you wouldn't normally feel. And, and that's why the psalmist says when you come into God's presence, you come shouting triumphantly in, in a song. That's why we have these instruments. That's why we spend half of the service singing, because it's what God has prescribed. There's some praise and thanksgiving that comes out best set to melody with lyrics and And with instruments. Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God. So this is why. This is why we shout triumphantly. For the Lord is a great God. A great King above all gods. Now you see that He's a great God. Capital G. He's a great King above all gods. Lower case G. So what does the Bible say? Are there other gods in this world? Or is there just one God? And the Bible's answer is yes and no. Uh, the, the scripture is clear that there is an unseen spiritual realm. That's what Paul tells the Ephesians, right? There are powers and authorities. He has a whole list of these invisible spiritual beings. So before God created the heavens and the earth, what we read in Genesis, he created other spiritual beings. And they're listed, and we call them angels. But there's really even categories of those angels. And some of them are called seraphim, and there's cherubim. And they got these wings, and they cover their eyes with their wings, and they cover their feet, and they say things. Some of them sing before God. Some of them are messengers. There's all these spiritual beings. And what the Bible tells us is before Adam and Eve created, there was a rebellion in the spiritual realm, that unseen realm where God reigns and rules. There was a rebellion there because some of those spiritual beings did what we do, which is, hey, I got something special to offer. I'm beautiful. I'm supernatural. I got ability. Why should I just be taking directions? I should be the one giving directions. And that's why a couple of times in the scripture, it talks about Satan's fall because he was one of those spiritual beings. And there were other spiritual beings that rebelled against God with him. And in the New Testament, Satan is referred to one time as the God, lowercase g, of this age. So you have the spiritual realm and the rebellion that's happened there. Meanwhile, when you read the scripture, you have all these cultures that the people of Israel are interacting with. And they are worshiping other gods. And those gods were represented by statues of wood, sometimes statues of gold and silver. And so the scripture 
combines some of that. That some of these spiritual beings, they have enticed humanity to worship them with different names across different cultures. That's why the Egyptians were worshiping lots of different gods. And some of their magicians, some of their spiritual leaders actually had some supernatural power. You remember when Moses threw down his uh, staff and it turned into a snake before Pharaoh? This was a sign that the God of Israel is powerful and the magicians of Egypt threw down their staffs and their staffs also turned into snakes. But then Moses' snake ate all of their snakes, which is awesome and snakes are gross and they all deserve to die, in my opinion. (laughs) So where did that supernatural power come from? It came from those fallen, invisible, supernatural beings. And some of those beings people worshipped as gods. But the psalmist says that the Lord, He is the God and King above all gods. So every being, whether it's one we can see and put our hands on, Or one we can't see and put our hands on. He is the king of everyone in every realm. Across time and space. He is the great king above all gods. Verse 4. The depths of the earth are in his hand. And the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. So now, now it's saying that not only is God the king above everything invisible. He is the king above everything that is visible. Including the earth which he made with his, dry, with his hands. The dry land and the sea. From the tallest peak Mount Everest. Down to the deepest hole in the ocean. Which is the challenger deep in the Mariana Trench. Off the coast of Guam. I know everybody knows where Guam is. If you want to Google it later, right outside outside of Guam is a hole in the earth that goes six miles, seven miles deep. So from that spot all the way to the top of Mount Everest, God's in charge of all that. So verse six, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So verse one and two said, we come into God's presence with thanksgiving and triumph. We come shouting. But in verse 6 it says we also bow down. We kneel before with humility. And life has always given us opportunities to be humble. Uh, last weekend our daughter Annabeth who's 10 was telling Amanda about the kind of man she wanted to marry. And so you can tell where this is going. And she says, I want to marry somebody who loves Jesus. And I'm like, check. I want to marry somebody manly. And she said it just like that. And I'm like, check. And I want to marry somebody handsome. Definitely check. So, you know, I'm trying to be a good role model to this little girl. Lives in my home. I'm trying to do everything that I can. And so, you know, I mean, I ain't going to lie. It would be awesome if she grows up and thinks, you know, I'm going to marry somebody like my dad. I think, I think there are worse things in this world. <laughs> so Amanda's telling me this story when they get home. And I'm like, yeah, this is like my dream coming true. You know, a little sign. Being a parent is hard. Just get a little, just, hey, that a boy, you know, from the Lord. That a boy, you're doing a great job. So Amanda gets to that point, and I'm feeling pretty good. And then she says, and then she went on to name the kind of 
person that she wants to marry with a name of a dad. And I'm like, here it is. And she named another dad. (laughs) This is no lie. A a dad of her friend. (laughs) So, let's just pray right now. Let's just pray. (laughs) All that to say, God has organized the world. With plenty of opportunities for us to be humble. And we either cooperate with those or we ignore those. And my advice to you is just own it. Just own that opportunity to be humbled. Because it is a gift from God, it is a good wound to get us. Out of the place of that Pharisee who said, everyone else is lucky that I am here. And into the posture of the tax collector who knows they are lucky to be here. It gets us down on our knees. That is not a posture that is comfortable. It's physically not comfortable. To get down on our knees. And it's definitely. Not internally comfortable. To get down on our knees. But bow down low. Before the Lord. Our God. The king of all gods. Is the best place that we can be. So I want to encourage you this week. I mean we can interpret that. Spiritually and. Yeah, my heart is bowed low, but I'd encourage you just to own that physical posture. When you're praying at home by yourself, after your kids are in bed, before everybody wakes up in your house, you you find an opportunity to go down physically on your knees, even if it's a little achy to get there. Because He is our Maker. And, verse 7, He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Now that little phrase, for he is our God, that sounds so religious. We just zoom right over that. But it's really important. Because when the psalmist says, he is our God, there's something personal attached to that. And God has made himself available to us personally. It started with the people of Israel in what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Where he made a literal deal with them. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then in Christ, he expanded that to anybody who would put their faith in Jesus. We will be his people, which is the part that we understand. If God is the king above all gods, he has all power. He's over all creation. Then it makes sense that he would say to us, I am your God. And now here's what I expect of you. That's what a dictator would do. That's what a totalitarian totalitarian, uh, government would do. We have all the power. We have all the authority. You are small compared to us. So now this is what we demand of you and expect of you. That makes sense to us if God is like that. But he takes it further. And he says, no, I'm I'm not putting you in that position just because I'm not just obligating you to respond to me. I will obligate myself to you people. Here's what you can expect of me. 
There are two ends to that covenant. So when the psalmist says, for he is our God, we can expect things from him. We can expect him to be good. Even though we may not understand, we can expect him to be good. We can expect him to be trustworthy. We can expect him to be our father. We can expect him to be our guide. We can expect him to be our comforter. He is our God. And he is our shepherd. Because we are the people of his pasture. The sheep under his care. That phrase, under his care, literally means of his hand. That's why Jesus was broken outside of Jerusalem He was on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or you've ever been on Google, you may know that uh, Jerusalem is built on a hill and then there's a valley and then there's another hill and, and that's called the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives is a Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed that, and was arrested. And the last week of his life, he was on the Mount of Olives and he was looking over the valley to Jerusalem and, and he's broken hearted. And the reason is because he says... That Jerusalem is like a, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They were supposed to be the sheep in his hand, under his care. But they had said, no, no, we're going to go our own way. We're going to listen to our own voice. That's why the next phrase says, today, if you hear his voice. This is so important. Because he's our shepherd and we are sheep. The sheep need the voice of the shepherd because the sheep have no perspective. They don't know where the green pastures are. They don't know the, the seasons. Well, it rained more this season, so we're going to go to this field. Or there was a drought this year, so that place we went last year, there's no grass there. They don't know how far away they are from the river or the stream that they can drink from. They don't have any perspective. That's why they need the voice of the shepherd, so that they can get the things that they need to, to have. So when we say to God, no, I'm going to listen to my own voice, it's like a sheep saying to the shepherd, I know. I know what's going on. I can see everything that you can see. I can know everything that you can know. Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Meribah means quarreling and Massa means testing. And this place in the wilderness was named that because of how Israel responded to God. It's Exodus chapter 19. God has miraculously delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through signs and wonders. I mentioned the gods of Egypt earlier. The ten plagues were aimed at ten different Egyptian deities. So it wasn't just random plagues. It was aimed at the heart of these Egyptian gods to say to the Egyptians, you think that you know power, you think that your gods have authority and can do things for you, but there is one God who is the king above all gods. So he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. They get out into the wilderness And the Pharaoh changes his mind. Most powerful man in the world at the time sends his army after the Israelites. Now, the Israelites have been slaves for generations. They don't have an army. They can do some fighting, but they're not organized. They're vulnerable. On one side is Pharaoh's army. On the other side, big body of water, the Red Sea. You remember what happens. God splits the Red Sea. Israel walks across on dry land. The Egyptians try to chase him. The water comes crashing down on them. Again, our God is the king above all gods. Visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, powers. He's 
over all of them. The Israelites have seen this. Now they're out in the desert. God is shepherding them to the promised land. But in the meantime, they're in this wilderness and they realize, well, what's our plan for water? And they start freaking out. Be like a sheep on its way to green pastures going, I don't know where the green pastures are. And so they grumble against God. They come to Moses and they say, God should have just left us as slaves in Egypt. God says to Moses, take your staff and hit it against the rock. So you can imagine kind of a cliff or the the, the base of a mountain. And he hits it against it and water starts coming out of the rock. It seems like a victory for Israel. But that's not how God interpreted it. He interpreted it as Meribah and Massa. They quarreled against God and they tested him there in the wilderness. Verse 9, where your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. I, I really remember with some detail when I took my driver's test when I was 16 years old. The Southwest Missouri, uh, I showed up right when the, the, the DPS opened uh, that morning. My birthday's on a holiday, uh, January 1st. I noticed that most of you didn't give me anything for my birthday. Um, and so the, obviously the, the office was closed that day. So January 2nd, I was there. My mom and dad both work. And so my grandfather took me to get my driver's test. I, my first car was a stick shift, which I was pretty good at. But you didn't want to take your driver's test with a stick shift just to add an element of a challenge there. So I was going to drive his car for my driver's test, which was a Chevy Impala, new Chevy Impala. And it was the first car I'd ever been in that had the automatic daytime running lights. You know, now every car has it. But at the time, you had to do that. Like, you had to turn on your lights. And they wouldn't just turn on automatically. So I knew his car they just came on automatically. So the first te- thing that the driver, you know, person uh, testing me asked was to turn on your lights. And I was like, they're not on. She's like, no, they're not on. I'm like, they're supposed to be on. I've heard of this thing. It's brand new. I don't know if you've heard of technology, daytime running lights. And, and she said, well, go inside and turn it on. And I just stared at the instrument panel. Like I knew that it was in there somewhere, but it was just all vague to me. And so she had to come in and show me where it was. That's humiliating and not a great way to start your driver's test. But I remember everything that happened under that. Where we went, uh, where she had me turn right, and I made a flawless right-hand turn on red. It was beautiful. Where we paralleled park. When we go back to visit my folks in Missouri, I sometimes drive my kids around and show them, this is right here. This is where the cones were, and I had to back it up. And, you know, here's where I got, wasn't sure about a left on yellow kind of thing, but I nailed it. Um, I remember it with, with great detail. But the reason you take your, your driver's test is because they want to know, can we trust you with this very dangerous thing? You're going to be out on the road with all of us. We want to know that you are safe. Can we trust you? And, and that's what the Israelites were saying to God at Meribah and Massa. We don't know if we can trust you. We feel like maybe you brought us out here into the wilderness just to kill us. And God took offense. I mean, look how offended he was. Verse 10, for 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. Now, thankfully for us, this wasn't a one-time mistake by the Israelites. They made this mistake over and over and over again. So it could be that you and I have a lapse, a momentary struggle Can I trust God? But he took it personally. They got their water, but at a great cost. Because that generation of Israelites never got in 
to the land of promise that God had been shepherding them towards. Because their hearts were hardened. So I swore in my anger, they will never enter into my rest. I know it's easy to think, well, that would never happen to me. I mean, the Israelites, they were dumb. I mean, they saw these miracles and wonders and they saw God's fire on top of the mountain. You'd think that they would just do everything that God said. And yet they didn't. They complained over and over and over again. They doubted God. It seemed like every opportunity they doubted God. Here's what's crazy though. A few years later, Israelites do the same thing again. We don't have any water. This account is at the end of Numbers. What'd you do? You bring us out of Egypt just to let us die in the wilderness? This is crazy. So they grumble against God to Moses. Moses goes before God, says, they're doing it again. And God says, hey, I want you to go to this other rock. And I want you to speak to it. And when you speak to it, the water's going to come out again. So the scripture says that Moses goes over to that rock. And you know what he does? He takes his staff. And he hits the rock again. And the water comes out, just like it had done the, the years before. And then God says to Moses, what are you doing? I told you to speak to the rock. And now you're not going to get to see the promised land either because you did not, and the scripture says this, you did not trust me. Which seems crazy because if the Israelites saw signs and wonders, God, or Moses, really saw God's signs and wonders, he actually got to go up on that mountain and be in the middle of all that fire. He was the one God was doing through the signs through. But you, it makes sense. Because years before he had this experience where he hit the rock with the staff and the water came out. That's already unbelievable. But now God's saying, I want you to take it a step further and just go up to the rock and be like, open. I mean, imagine how foolish that feels. So at the last minute, he doubted God. And whack. He didn't get to enjoy the full benefit of his salvation. Because he put God to the test. So there's not one of us in here this morning. That should say, no, never me. If it happened to the Israelites, it can happen to me. I can test God. If it happened to Moses, it can definitely happen to me. And what disgusts God is a hardened, ungrateful, distrusting heart. And so we see these two pictures. We can be worshipers or we can be wanderers. But God deserves our trust and not our tests. So I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to take your calloused heart seriously. When you feel your heart hardening a little bit, take it seriously. And let's be active, grateful, humble worshipers. Let's pray.